the film uh, centers on two monsters. And this film uh, features the top scarer, Sully, and his one-eyed partner, Mike Wazowski. The employees, uh, they generate the city's power by targeting and scaring children. But they themselves, they're afraid that the children may contaminate them. And when one child enters Monstropolis, Mike and Sully must return her. Do any adults here have any idea what I just described in that movie? Monsters, Inc. That's Actually, it's one of my favorite um, movies. I really enjoyed it. I remember the first time I saw it, and the kids were enjoying it. I said, this is good. And it's got some great quotable lines from it and so forth. Well, go ahead and admit it, though. I know this movie, it is a movie, and it's a movie that uh, it makes monsters uh, nice and um, soft and furry and funny. But uh, go ahead and admit it. You were really, really scared of something when you were a child. Now, it would be fun if we had time to kind of find out what those were. Uh, But actually, it's not hard to confess that we did have fears. We come into the world with a fear problem. We're just born that way. We're predisposed to fear. And But just because we learn that there is not a monster in our closet, it doesn't mean that we're free from fear. I assume that you did learn that, that there is not. I may pause and just say something further about those fears. I guess probably for many of us, it was the dark, just the dark. Or it could have been maybe uh, something that you thought was under the bed. Or, as someone I know had a problem with the fear of that there were, could be skunks under the house. And there was um, other things scare people. I'm not divulging any names here to protect the guilty, but uh, trees, bad weather can be a very scary thing to children. And to... Uh, and various kinds of animals. One of my first scare moments, I sound like a sissy when I say this, but I don't know why I was, but I, I was probably about five years of age. It was in Ohio, visiting my aunt and uh, her, her husband, uh, and my uncle by marriage. He, I just remember there was this huge... Now, this was probably about 1946, I guess, but there was this huge tractor that was running, and he had a look to me like a huge uh, plot of ground he was working. Probably wasn't that big. You know, when you're children, everything looks really, really big. And But he had that big tractor, and he wanted to sit me up on it to uh, enjoy a tractor ride. I would have nothing of it. I mean, it was just, it was frightening. That big machine, it looked like a, it looked like a skyscraper to me and to get up on that thing. And uh, so I had my passing experience with uh, an early fear. But what about other things that come to us? Some of us have fears of high places, closed places, 
Fear of people. Fear of losing a spouse. Fear of flying. And there are many others. But I'm here to tell you tonight that there is hope. And we can overcome fear by God's grace. We do not have to live in submission to our fears. Jesus said a lot about fear. One thing that he did say that I have found that is uh, especially comforting is the way he framed it. And it's in Matthew in chapter 6 and verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow. (laughs) And then he said, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I had originally was going to uh, have our study that was entitled Overcoming Fear and Worry. But I began to, uh, as I looked at it again closely, I said, worry really stands alone. It's, it's a first cousin to fear, and it, it deserves a, a special kind of treatment, but not here, not tonight, some other time. We're going to just go after this matter of fear. So let me ask you then, what do you fear the most? I hope that by the time we get through this, that if I can poke around enough, that uh, we'll uh, have some of our fears smoked out and that uh, at least we'll be on the road to dealing with ourselves in a more serious way than we have been up to this point. We may very well have fears that we have accommodated, domesticated, and we don't pay attention to, but have significantly, are significantly altering our lives and our strategies for living. But... To just go over the the way in which fears can be expressed and what we go through, they range uh, quite across uh, an interesting spectrum of emotions and and physiology. Namely, they go from uneasiness to just total insecurity. And there's normal fear, which apprehends realistic danger. Tornado warnings. Uh, Take those seriously. And uh, I think we all should. There are irrational fears. We call those phobias. They have been called phobias by some. And that it's estimated that one in nine adults harbors some kind of phobia. That's just fear that's sort of on steroids, the way I would put it. It's just a fear that's, that's, that's chronic and quite acute. And there's acrophobia and agoraphobia and claustrophobia. And the symptoms uh, can be purely mental events in a moment of fear, worrying about what's going to happen. There can be accompanied with that, or perhaps in advance on that, muscular tension, shakiness, tremors, headaches, and then add to that watchfulness, edginess, noticing each sound, hard to concentrate, can't sleep. Or some frightening autonomic events like sweating, pounding heart, chest pains, dizziness, faint feelings, numbness, dry mouth, upset stomach, diarrhea, frequent urination, butterflies, lump in the throat. Oh, we put all those together. This sounds catastrophic, doesn't it? But I will tell you this, that... I'm not going into all the, when I have time to, we're, we're trying to compress an awful lot in this limited time tonight in taking fear <clears throat> uh, in just one study. But there's the whole issue of panic attacks 
And if you've ever had a panic attack or you know someone has had a panic attack, it's not funny. And you can get, you can get a, a cluster of these symptoms that go with panic attacks, and they're very awful things. Well, what is fear? Fear, it's a, as I would define it, would be a mental and physical reaction to dangers, real or imagined. Now, these dangers, it may be a person, maybe a place, maybe a thing. But I don't want to give fear any kind of uh, um, applause that it doesn't deserve. For the most part, I will distinguish between fears of friend and fears of foe, that it's self-centeredness. And phobias themselves, as we allow fear to go along and increase without attention, it has been said that it draws, they, phobias, draw their energy from the bottomless wells of self-protection. The bottomless wells of self-protection. I don't know anything that quite compares to fear to really bring up what's inside of us, what we value, what's most important to us. Let's, let's press it a little. I'm going along seven lines here to stress the goal of overcoming, overcoming fear. I won't take the time to go back and rehearse the biblical doctrine of sanctification how we grow up and mature in Christ. But to simply say this, this series is trying to address some of those sin issues, sin-related issues that we all have to deal with as we mature in Christ. And here is one that is huge on that spectrum, namely fear itself. So let's go along those seven lines. First, overcoming fear begins by understanding an understanding of the cause or causes of fear. I say singular and plural because there was an originating cause, and it is an original sin. And then there, is sub, there are subsequent causes which come out in the circumstances in which the underlying tendency, inclination to fear, manifests itself. Fear is the result of the entrance of sin into the world. It's a result of disobedience to God. You can see it in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 10. Loss of fellowship with God resulted in fear. Adam and Eve, what was their first, their first movement in relation to God when they had disobeyed God? It was to hide from God. Fear. He was, Adam was aware of the presence of God's displeasure and its resulting judgment. And what did Adam and Eve do? They hid. They were afraid. Now, what had happened? Before this time, they had walked with God each day and talked with him, communication with God in heaven. And everything in the text leads us to believe it was something that was, there was com- they were completely at ease. It was comfortable, a natural, normal thing. But now suddenly things are not natural and not normal, and God is seen as an enemy. He was a threat rather than a friend. 
Also, we must say this about fear, if we want to trace its cause, that fear is a result of rejecting God's wisdom. When we set aside God's wisdom, His revelation, and giving us the understanding of how to live skillfully in a fallen world, we are inviting a host of fears. When we set aside divine wisdom, we invite this host of fears to live with us. And the tragedy is, is that we begin to find out how limited we really are, and we're not in control. Thirdly, sins that are not handled in a biblical way result in fear. The wicked flee when no man pursueth. Proverbs 28 and verse 1. And fear arises in our encounters with the unknown. I have a reference here of Genesis 12, 10, and 12 passage that your story you're familiar with. Abraham had a knockout for a wife. I mean, everywhere he Sarah, he anticipates that she is going to attract male attention. What happens? He's afraid. So he, when they, they go down to Egypt, and he's afraid that he will be killed so that someone can have Sarah, he tells her to lie. What is the whole thrust of that? The fear of Abraham. And in order to protect himself. I like uh, what Ed Welch says with regard to this matter of the unknown. And I mention a name here, and so I will mention the book to which his name is attached. And this is called Running Scared. I recommend this highly. You want to really go after this issue, you, you would want to visit this book and work with it. It's uh, Actually, we took this book in a Sunday school class uh, some years back, a few years back. And we went through it chapter by chapter, running scared by Ed Welch. He says this, If we need comfort, we will fear physical pain. If we need approval from others, we will fear being criticized. If we need love, we will fear rejection. If we we need admiration for our attractiveness, we will fear getting fat. Whatever you need is a mere stone's throw from what you fear. And with that, we press on this matter of fears and how this world we live in. You know, we live in a dangerous world. So we're not having to manufacture something that's out there. So we don't, we don't come at fear and saying, well, there's really nothing out there to fear. Oh, yes, there is. <laughs> we'll start with sin. And then all its consequences. And if I may just inject this contemporary cultural note that you don't have to even be a news watcher to realize that the primary adversary of our way of life today, cultural and political life, is what? It's terrorism. And if, uh, well... And that is the very word itself defines what terrorists seek to do. They want to use fear as the means of breaking you down and getting control over you and making concessions. And eventually, of course, to maybe get you, weaken you so much, you give up. You become inept and unable 
to oppose the adversary, terrorism. All right, let's consider the second matter of importance here in overcoming fear, and that overcoming fear involves seeing fear as a friend and a foe. Friend and a foe. That Now, we have within us a built-in alarm system. Fear. I think it's, fear is not, it's like anger. Anger in and of itself is not a sinful, a sinful essence. It's a capacity that God has given to us, but it has been tragically ruined and distorted by sin. There is a possibility for righteous anger. We'll deal with that next week in overcoming anger. And God has put this alarm system within us because there are those things, let's start, let's start there. There are those things that we should not fear, and there are those things that we should fear. Now, I, I'm not going to explore what we should fear. I think we could, um, we could guess there are reasonable, there are things that we want to uh, avoid doing. And we use seat belts, and we have alarm systems, and we have such to keep us from uh, life jackets. Get in a boat, put on a life jacket. What do they do in an airplane? First, if you overcome the fear of getting on an airplane, then one of the first things to tell you to do is that when that thing drops down in front of your face, please, please be sure to, you know, how they explain how to use the oxygen mask. Um, and I think a legitimate uh, exercise of this inbuilt alarm system would be that if you have a sum of money at your disposal, that you're going to want to ask a financial expert advice before you go out and make investments. I mean, we can go through some legitimate things. So fear is a lack of fear is not a is not recklessness, and it's not stupidity. <clears throat> God has given us an alarm system. However, there are things that we should not be afraid of, and quite a list, actually, which I'm, I've had to condense from previous studies and pages of things in the Bible say that we should not fear. We really shouldn't fear, as Christians, problems, shouldn't fear opposition, shouldn't fear people, we shouldn't fear trials, we shouldn't fear the future, we shouldn't fear false gods. We shouldn't be afraid to put Christ first in all things, Luke chapter 12, verse 32. We should not be afraid to obey the Lord, Luke 5, 10. Do not be afraid. This is what Jesus told his disciples at the onset of their ministry. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Now, why did he need to say that to put them at ease? Because they do not need to be daunted by the the. Uh, going out into a world that doesn't want God, is an enemy of God, and hates God, and doesn't want the gospel, but don't let that shut you down. But let's say something about fear as a friend. Fear can be a friend, and how so? And this is, I think, really the crux of the issue of, of uh, if you're going to fight fear, you know how you fight it? You fight it with a greater fear. And what's the greater fear? It's the fear of the Lord. This is a huge topic in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. Let's get a definition and talk about it just a little bit. It's fear of God, 
is being so awed by God's power and glory that our desire is to please and obey him. It's just being overwhelmed with who he is, his majesty, his glory, his greatness, his goodness. And the Old Testament uses this as, I think it's the, we speak of in the New Testament, being in Christ is sort of the terminology for what we, when we want to communicate what we might say is positional truth, that is, I'm in Christ, that terminology. And if you want the Old Testament counterpart to that, the truth expressing positional truth, it's fear of the Lord. It's all over the place. I'll pause and make a recommendation to you here. There is there's a very helpful uh, book by Jerry Bridges on this subject, The Joy of Fearing God. I like that juxtaposition there. The joy of fear of God, that's, that's, that's a wise uh, relationship in those words. The fear of the Lord is a life-giving fountain, Proverbs 14, 27. So if you want to press this a little further, you want to really get into something that uh, will be good sustenance for your soul, I, I recommend you could use that as a, as a personal study. But this fear of the Lord, we know in Proverbs 1 and 7, it's the beginning of wisdom. As fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Knowledge and wisdom are used there as synonyms. But the fear of the Lord, it reveals to us, let's just say this generically about fear, that fear reveals our allegiances. The fear of God would reveal our ultimate allegiance. It is to him and to him only. We revere him above all else. This is, this is the starting block for everything that proceeds in living a God-pleasing life, is accepting, acknowledging that God is absolutely sovereign and rules, and we fear him, and we're loyal to him and allegiance to him. So whatever we may say then with regard to fear, whatever is the most important thing is that to us is that which rules us. That's why Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek first. Let that rule us. That's all I'm going to say about these friend and foe aspects of fear. But I want to move on to something else, and I hope we can really get some time because I think this subject we might want to talk about and ask questions about. So let's go. Thirdly, overcoming fear necessitates understanding the consequences of fear. Where will it take you? Well, fear, in the first place, produces the very thing we fear. Proverbs 10, 24, what the wicked fears will come upon him. For example, we can fear rejection, so what happens? We don't reach out to people, and therefore, we are rejected. We fulfill our own wish. We fulfill our own fears. We, feel, we, we fear failure so much that we fail. Has that ever happened to you on an exam? I mean the, the, kind, the paper kind. <laughs> it's sitting in front of you. The blue book. At least that's what. Do they still use the blue books for writing out in your answers? I guess it's more sophisticated now. Secondly, fear keeps us from making the right decisions. Matthew, the 21, 26 passage that I have 
posted for you there is really speaking uh, of uh, uh, probably unregenerate there who said for fear of the multitudes, the Pharisees didn't take action. But it's a, I think it stands as a universal principle here that fear blurs our moral perspective. It blinds us to the moral and ethical standards we ought to follow. Well, that's one thing that it will do. And thirdly, fear limits our freedoms. That fear can become a tool of Satan to hinder us in carrying out the work of God. I'll give you some examples. You know, this, uh, this matter of fear and stymieing one in the work of God comes out prominently in the book of Nehemiah, doesn't it? You remember the story that where Israel is back to the land post-exilic experience after 70 years in Babylonian captivity. And they come back to build the temple, to build the city. And whether they have, they had adversaries who used fear as a means of trying to, to undercut their, their incentive and their boldness and to threaten them. And they're going to be very effective. And fear can create a very small self-protective world. That's where it will take you in limiting your freedom. Because when you let the fears dictate to you your strategies or your, the ways, the decisions you make as to how you want to live, you can get into a very, very small world. For example, fear of travel. May I even make it even more personal? I think it's possible that some people don't go on mission trips and don't fly abroad to visit missionaries. And if they would admit it, it's fear of travel and maybe fear of flying. Now, don't be upset with me. I'm not saying that's your problem. Maybe it's just that uh, there are other uh, issues that are involved. But I say it could be. It could be. We have to examine ourselves. Now, I've often thought about that fear of flying like you have too. Everybody in here has probably flown at some time or another. And, and you think about it, it almost seems to be just irrational, doesn't it? I mean, I don't go through that. I'll be honest with you. I don't go through the mental processes when I get in my automobile that I do when I get in an airplane. I don't think twice about getting in the car and driving somewhere. But the odds are, you know, statistics, they, they don't, they're not meant to comfort. Uh, it's like the man who tried to walk across a lake whose average depth was six feet, you know, and he drowned. And uh, so statistics can't fully, can completely solve your problems. But we, you will find that uh, uh, a fear like a fear of flying, a fear of travel. I know a man, I knew a man of a Christian leader, and I heard him admit it in a message. And he said, if I mentioned his name, you would know him. And I said, well, he was very candid. He had a fear of, of uh, flying to the point where he would only ride on trains. I don't know if he ever overcame it. I didn't get the sequence to the sequel to that. But he would only he would ride on trains to go to this place and that. Well, fear, can, fear then obviously can keep us from doing some extraordinarily important things like witnessing. Wouldn't we all admit to that? Or, or speaking out on an important issue. This kind of thing. And, and then finally, fear can become a debilitating habit. It, it's a learned response. It's a way of thinking and acting. And we get in bondage to fear. And, of course, this brings up a, a question of why do some of us have more fears than others of us? 
And I, if I may pause and just do a little speculating here uh, with regard to this, and I, you, you, I think, probably have observed the same, that you know some people, and maybe you're one of them, I don't know. You may be a person who is specially given to fears. Now, we all have the capacity for fear. I'm not saying that they're the, the, the fears and the not fears. <laughs> we all have fears, but there's some who have a special problem with fears. And I, I think it, my estimate or guess in this is that, you know, we're born with uh, sins of choice. We all are. There's some sins that we just tend to go to more quickly than other sins, though we're capable of any of them. And some of us, uh, by temperament, by personality, by upbringing, uh, and by conscience, we, uh, have, uh, we have these struggles, some more than others. But I don't want to make this, I'm not trying to create a soft landing for all of us here tonight. We all have to deal with fear. So I probably should have footnote this statement that what you see in others as their fears and wonder how in the world could they ever get into such a mess with those fears. I would suggest that you and I probably have our own set or fears, but that we have been able to, um, we've had them in as our guest for so long that we don't think twice about how we've accommodated them. Let's go a little further with that then. Let's go to the fourth uh, step in this. We want to overcome fear. Overcoming fear is made possible when the bondage of fear is broken through faith in Christ. This is hugely important. I'm going to read this passage in Hebrews in chapter 2 and 14 and 15. I'll read it and you say, oh yes, I've heard that verse I know this verse. I know these verses. And it reads as follows. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now, I had, a, uh, I had, I guess to me it was traumatic, dramatic, but may not be to you, but I can remember a fear that I had that for those who have psychologized the process of conviction and salvation, they say this is a very infantile motivation for wanting to be converted. But I, here's what I'm saying, lest I leave you with a riddle. I I can remember from an early age dealing with a fear of, of, of dying. I mean, I didn't, I don't think I obsessed about it, but I just can remember being that little prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I don't know who taught me that prayer, but I remember praying it, and I thought, well, but, but I began to think about it. And what am I praying that for? I could die. What is death? Now, I don't know that I had a really a, quite an expansive, in-depth understanding of death, but I knew that you weren't here anymore. I knew that much about it. And I, I, was, I was afraid of death. And, and I also had this fear of God as a judge. And I can remember some episodes as a child uh, thinking that God, remember one time, I had a problem of profanity. I don't know that my family knew it because if I had, I'd had my mouth washed out with soap. 
but I was just probably at about the third grade. And uh, I can remember being out in the woods building a little bridge. I like to build bridges over what I thought were places that needed one. And, and, I, and I was out there, and I would kept... I had some really some uh, really crude tools I was working with, so I kept hitting my fingers, you know, and I'd say things. I can remember saying them, and I can remember just saying, I'd ask God, forgive me. I said a bad word. So I had this lingering of this chronic thing of fear of death. But let me fast forward this thing. It came on up to my early teens, and the thought of hell associated with death, as I began to get that dimension Going to Sunday school, and I guess having Christian grandparents. And as that came into the picture, death, hell, I was frightened. And I did not want to die in that condition. Now, that was not all that motivated me. But it was also not wanting to relinquish control. But so, the fear of death, it had me, it had a chokehold on me. So I, I think about that. I read this passage in, in Hebrews. So, but at the moment of salvation, there is a deliverance from enslavement to sin, to fear. And we need someone stronger who is stronger than our fears. And the fear of death is removed. We need who is, as I repeat, someone who is stronger and bigger than our fears. Now, I want to recommend another book. I had three here, and this gives me the occasion to mention the third one. And it's written by uh, Elise Fitzpatrick, called Overcoming Fear, Worry, and Anxiety. And it's a well-written and a very helpful book. And it's, it's not a, just a woman's book. It can be helpful to men as well. I, I, I recommend it. And I'll reference something on it in, in a little while. But let me say this in addition. The fear of God is to replace the fear of man. The fear of man is a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Proverbs 29, 25. And God in Christ has given us the ability to cope with life and its pressures. I like this in Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So, do you see the agenda? Do you see the reality? And before I leave it, let me say this. If you have, if, if you've got a fear of, well, how can I put this? Because I think all fears actually lead in the direction of the fear of death. Have you resolved that fear of death in the judgment of God? Are you afraid of dying? Can you say, as sure as I'm sitting here tonight, I know that if my heart stopped beating and I died, I would go into the presence of Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Now, don't try to play the humble game with me here and say, oh, it's just so prideful to say you. No, it is not. It's pride to do the other because you're not taking God at his word and saying, whosoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. And you have freedom from the fear of death. Have you that freedom? All right, let's proceed. Fifthly, then, overcoming fear requires an awareness of the patterns of sin and temptations to fear. In other words, uh, this is where I'm saying that you've got to do a little uh, work on yourself. 
you can be your own best physician to a certain extent. Ask yourself the right questions. Are there places, people, activities, or situations which you avoid? What were some of the greatest fears you had as a child? Well, have you overcome them? Have you limited your life due to a, certain, to a person or certain things such as bridges, elevators, thunderstorms, dogs, cats, <laughs> crowds? I have to run through a list of something here, and I'm, I want to... The reason I'm going to give you this very brief, fast list of some things I've jotted down is my question is this, in asking questions. What strategies have you developed to fight fear which have altered your effectiveness as being God's servant? That's the question. Now, let me give you, I'm just going to give you some, I'm going to give you some bait. That's all I'm throwing out there. And so it's sort of like the corks going out there on the top of the water. And I'll let you see if you pull the cork down under and go with it and deal with it as you should. First of all, uh, asking yourself questions. Is there a problem with the fear of failing? Well, my concern here is then, do, do you pad your life with dodges? Avoidance of people. Avoid your, uh, pad your life by seeking to minimize responsibilities. Are you unwilling to take what I would call responsible risk? Now, Fitzpatrick here, she has a very helpful chapter on the subject of fear caused by perfectionism. Chapter 6 in here. And if, if this is your inclination, you know what perfectionists do. We, we, all, have a, we all have a little perfectionist a Pharisee inside of us. So, uh, But what... What we do is think, well, if if God says don't do this, then we want to layer on top of that all these don'ts, and we set them as our standard. Uh, I think I was reading it here somewhere where uh, at least Fitzpatrick mentioned, like if we think cleanliness and being sanitary is the way to be good stewards of our body and to fight germs and so forth, so then we start wanting to... uh, uh, Wash our uh, clean, get, get all the dust out of the house and every speck of dust. And you can get obsessive with house cleaning and cleaning. Or maybe thinking that you need to wash and wax your car every week. I know you may be amused at this kind of thing, but we all, we develop some really strange strategies. Some of us can do, do that. Fear of failing. And uh, fear of aging. I've got to move on with these. Uh, the fear of aging. That's another question. Are you afraid to age? Uh, How could you get strategies that could alter yourself? Well, if you're fighting against it, then you're going to begin to do things that could could be expensive. You could think, well, clothes or having some work done on the body. I won't go any further with that unless somebody be offended here, but uh, there are things that... We can begin to do with our physical features and body. I don't want to look old. No, I'm not saying that. I don't care. There's nothing I can do about it. And, uh, but jealousy, manipulation, there are strategies, strategies that we can adopt because we're really, if you get right down to it, we're afraid of getting, we're afraid of the aging process. 
All right. And then there's the fear of changing. Fear of changing. Um, <clears throat> that is, if I have to face up to my, and you name it, say my pride, that means I'm going to have to humble myself. That scares me. That'll make, I might look weak. I don't want to look weak. Or it can be a strategy of stubbornness, just pushing back and resisting any talk of change. This has shut down many a marriage, this very thing, the fear of changing. It's like I'm happy in who I am. I'm comfortable with myself. Well, congratulations. I'm sure the Lord is really impressed with it when we say things like that. And so we can get into control. We want to try to control God. We want to try to control all our circumstances. Fear of changing. Fear of man. This is the fear of the, and I'll, and I'll take it into kind of a, a, a subcategory. We've dealt with it already, the fear of man. But fear of the opinions of others. I will tell you that there are many, many a middle schooler and high schooler and teenagers have special battles here in this, well, have their own kinds of battles, let's put it that way. We all have to deal with fear of man. But fear, like the clothes that I wear, I've got to have certain labels. I've got to have certain styles. Uh, physical appearance, I've got to look a certain way. I've got to have certain friends. And so my fear, the fear then of what others may think of me, can significantly then begin to alter what I do. I had a very, I had an experience with this when I was in the ninth grade. Now, think about these things. This was 59 years ago, folks, and I can remember this like it's yesterday, and it, it altered some behavior, maybe for the better, I don't know. But my mother, would up to that point, she would she'd cut my hair. And, um, and uh, she obviously didn't. I was hoping nobody would ever notice that my hair was being cut by my mother, Except I walked into this little place where we walked home from high school every day. It was a little, you know, one of these little uh, restaurants. You go in and you buy gidunk candy and stuff, and the guys would hang out there. And I'll never forget, I was in the ninth grade, and there was this senior football player. I know his name. <laughs> That's how well I remember. And he said in front of everybody else, he said, Boy, did your mama cut your hair with a bowl on your head? Whoa. I said, This is not going to happen again. <laughs> Well, I can laugh about it now, but I wasn't laughing at that moment. But you see how something like that can cut right into you. And you just mix that in with vainglory. If you just, you, we all have streaks of vainness in us. What can we do with fear of man? All right, I got to move along. Number five, a fear of conflict. Fear of conflict. This is the avoidance of problems. So if you, you don't like conflict, it's sweaty, it's hard, it's, it, you get a lump in your throat, and it means some confrontation, it means dealing with yourself, it means acknowledging some sin and some error, asking forgiveness, all that stuff. You say, I'm not going there. That's just too much. And so, therefore, what do you do? You won't talk about the issues that you need to talk about. Or you find other things that will compensate. So you think alcohol, drugs, television, sports. And so you substitute, you substitute action for biblical action. And then 
I, I've got two or three more, but I'm, I'm run, running out of time, so let, let me get on with this. All right. Overcoming fear, six, let's get to this. Overcoming fear involves knowing how to replace fear with love. Oh, this is hugely important to think through and pray through. I came across this some years ago. I think this comes up in Jay, one of Jay Adams' book. He, he addressed this subject. Bless that dear man. He, he stuck his neck out early on in the last century in presenting the case for biblical counseling when everybody was against the thoughts that he was bringing forward. He may not have said and done everything right, and who does? But I'll tell you, he got a lot of things right. And I remember this, and I put it in my notes and have kept it through these years. And he had ways to show in a difference between fear and love. This is too fast for you to get down. I didn't put it on the, on the uh, slide. But, for example, here's love. Love, I'll mention that first. Love looks for opportunities to give. Of course, all this comes out of the first John 4:18. Perfect love casts out all fear. Well, that's God's ways. Love looks for opportunities to give. Fear keeps a wary eye on the possible consequences of involvement. God's way, love. Love lays down its life for others. Fear will not take personal risk to help another. Love believes all things. Fear is highly suspicious. Love is busy with today's task and doesn't worry about tomorrow. Fear worries about tomorrow and fails to undertake responsibilities today. Five, love never fails. Fear occasions greater fear. Failure to assume responsibilities brings more fear of consequences of acting and acting irresponsibly. I thought that that's helpful to think through that list and see the difference between love and fear. Lest we want to elevate fear as having some special kingdom of its own right when its love is to replace it. So it's another way of of focusing on fear of the Lord, loving him. So let's uh, go to the final statement. Final, Final thought. Overcoming fear demands fighting fear with the promises of God. The promises of God. Jesus promised never to leave us or forsake us. How real is that to you? Is that palatable? Can you taste that reality? He's with us. And he stands by us. He told his disciples this while he was... You know, if you stop to think about this whole matter of fear and its relation to worry, I you make a case for the fact that The human race has been in, since the fall, one chronic condition of separation anxiety. Separated from God by sin. And faith in Christ remedies that. And Jesus addresses this separation anxiety issue with his disciples. (laughs) Their Lord and Master is going to leave them. And what does he say? I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Though you don't see me, I am with you. And he sent his Holy Spirit to be the comforter. Jesus understands our fears and all the feelings that go with them. Matthew 14 and 27. Now, that's an episode with the disciples. You know, Jesus set up many of these situations to just deeply imprint in the, in the minds of the disciples, in their memories, truths. And this is one of them. That night, he's walking, on the, he's walking on the water and the storm. And what does he tell his disciples? 
He tells them, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. You think there is a chance that the disciples may have had a flashback to that when they faced extreme circumstances and threats and dangers, dangers in their own life after the Lord had ascended to heaven? I know they did. And thirdly, our focus should not be on the thing we fear, but on the Lord and his promises. I have this, this uh, quote here from Spurgeon. I like this. Half our fears arise from neglect of the Bible. So I, I, I don't want to minimize the, the hard work that is sometimes necessary in going after fears. They can get deeply embedded, and they're like, it's like a tumor. And it can get roots that go around all kinds of ways and attach to other things. And fear won't stand alone. It can be related to anger. It can be related to jealousy. You know, all those ways in which sins um, uh, get wired into one another. However, acknowledging some of those complexities, I don't want to overstress. I, don't, I want to stress this. Half of our fears arise from neglect of the Bible. Do you read your Bible? Are you just absolutely awed with God and what he can do and who he is? Does, does that just smite you? So this means obedience is more important than circumstances. And it means that I understand that God ordains and rules over all our fearful circumstances. Every one of them. Whatever I face. Whatever I have to cope with. Deal with. Whatever, it's a person. It's a place. Or it's a thing. Now I'll just leave this with two questions. What are your fears? What are your fears? You want to go home and do this in the privacy of your own little prayer closet or wherever. But they tell a lot about us. Just take your top three fears. Take your top three fears and ask what they say about you. That's your homework assignment. And our fears, actually, they are they're attached to the things that we value. For example, <clears throat> comfort. Maybe I value comfort so much that pain-free living is, and anything that would possibly threaten pain-free living is just unacceptable. Or it could be money, fear of its loss, and there are other things that we could mention. Do you want to say anything, ask any questions, uh, confess any childhood fears or whatever? Uh, Vern? Well, I would say that there are legitimate dangers that we have to be established to deal with. One of those would be that we have to protect ourselves, which the Lord has given government the right to do so, according to Romans 13, and that we're told we have to fight evil. We overcome evil with good, but the government is set in place to protect us. Now, is it possible for a people or a nation to get so obsessed with comfort and safety and protection that we could, uh, I'll suggest this to you, that uh, I'll turn it even a little more closely in upon a lot of uh, what government can do, is that America, we can get so obsessed with protection and safety and be so fear-driven that there is no end to the regulations that we impose people that end up destroying our freedoms. And uh, you try to consider every contingency. And you just, all you need is maybe a few hundred lawyers and a few thousand bureaucrats to create reams and reams of pages whereby you can be protected from such and such. 
with whatever help OSHA may have come, and I'll let you talk to Ron about this if you want to discuss how OSHA could possibly, or any other businessman, how the desire to protect people from on the job, how it's just, it's gone, it's gone uh, uh, over the top, overboard. And just go down the line of things that we are asked to do for protection. And uh, I can get into some personal opinions here. And uh, you pay, just think of the money, for example, that you pay on your automobile. Are all those things necessary to protect us? Um, I won't mention those because that will distract you, and then you'll think whatever else we've taught tonight is just opinion. So I'll keep that down. But so I answer your question that we as government, we, the, best def- the best way to protect ourselves as a nation is to have a strong military. That's the best, that is one the best peace um, uh, protecting device for human government there is uh, for just handling those who wish to destroy us and defeat us. Have a good, strong military. Now, you've got to have other things, obviously, but so anyway, what do you, all right? Yes. I would put that in the category of a legitimate, uh, reasonable response to a perceived danger. Yeah. Well, we take uh, we we take reasonable precautions with things that we. We look both ways when we pull out on an intersection. We understand that alarm system. We don't want to take, especially when we're making left turns. <laughs> uh, anything else? That's matter of fear. Yes, Dave. Oh, I really, I put it in the form of a statement of what are, I should say. What are our what are our fears attached to? What values are our fears attached to? They tell a lot about us. Our values is comfort. How important is comfort? How important is safety? Is that something that is, I had a quote here I did not read, but it's in Bridges' book on is God safe? <laughs> it's from the lion, the witch, in the wardrobe. And there's a very good little paragraph in there about God is being safe. And, uh, okay, just. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. That's a very good point. Yes, the smothering in the name of love, which is really a self-serving thing that I'm doing this so I'll feel better. There, are a lot of these real biblical virtues can get uh, totally sabotaged by what is selfishness. I think compassion, for example, is one of those. Many people want to call things compassion, which is nothing but selfishness. Because I'm going to give you this or I'm going to do this for you 
Um, and I feel better because I did it. Not taking into account, was this the best thing to do? Is this compassion is truth-driven. Protection is truth-driven. Uh, uh, and so, um, well, we have to watch ourselves, don't we? 